0: This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on.
1: I'm your host, KC Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. I get a lot of pitches, like a lot, (laughs) but rarely does a pitch make me reply just yes in all caps. And that pitch was to chat with Carrie Coon. You may know Carrie from her roles in Fargo, The Sinner, Widows, or The Post, but I first became a fanboy of Carrie's after watching her as Nora Durst from The Leftovers, which I firmly believe is still one of the most underrated shows of all time. Having cut her teeth in theater, Carrie got a relatively late start in TV and film, but has more than made up for lost time with these intense and often absurd roles, which she's now parlaying into podcasts. Carrie stars in Gimlet's new dark comedy, Mother Hacker, and in our conversation, we talk about why the dark side feeds her creativity, how she's tapped into the physicality of creativity, and how you can do the same. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm
1: quite excited. Me too. (laughs) And so, you got your start in acting in theater, and I'm just curious to know, what foundation do you think the stage gave you that you may not have had if you started your career in film and TV instead?
0: Well, I'll say, firstly, I wouldn't have been able to start a career in film and TV. I didn't even know one could. Hmm. I grew up in a small town. I didn't really go to the theater, movie theaters or, <laughs> or regular <laughs> theaters. Theaters or the theater. No offense to my parents. It's just <laughs> my parents worked full-time jobs. and so There were five kids in my family, so we just didn't do a lot of stuff. So I, it was really the only path for me. But as far as what it gives me as an actor... I'm always encouraging younger actors to start off in the theater because you're the arbiter of taste. Mm. Uh, in TV and film, you're always waiting for a director to tell you that they got what they needed. You're waiting for an editor to decide which of your performances they want to use. And in the theater, when the director goes away and you're running the show, it's just you. Mm. And you're the one who has to gauge your relationship to an audience and whether or not you have them. Right. And whether or not you're being a good storyteller. And if you, that's a muscle. Right. And if you don't have access to that muscle, then I think it's easy to lose your way. And maybe, for example, you find yourself being directed in TV and film and you disagree with it, but you don't trust that instinct. Mm -hmm. And so you don't really have a place to start that conversation, I think. Right. And also just the basics of using your body to fill a space, acting with your whole body. In the theater, it's not just from the neck up. it's, It's everything you've got. So... Including your voice, which, of course, podcasting is really, Mm -hmm. that's the most most critical component of this new audio world that we're all living in. And the voice work that you have to do to be on on the stage is really different than TV and film. And I find that a lot of younger actors who skip that part Mm. don't have the flexibility, Mm. the vocal flexibility or the, you know, even just doing a horror movie, they can't scream. (laughs) And in TV and film, I've heard so often directors talking about, oh, well, we we can only do this for five takes because the actor will lose their voice. Well, it doesn't have to be that way.
1: Right. And so I think that's really interesting that you that you talk about knowing how to navigate a relationship with the audience when you're on stage Mm -hmm. and knowing knowing when you're losing them. And so is there an example of that? Because obviously you've done so much theater work. So is there an example of when you felt you were losing the audience and you adjusted your performance in a way to get them back?
0: That's interesting. I It's hard to recall specific moments. Of course, the goal of being in the theater is 100% presence. Yes. That should be the goal of our lives. But that's yeah. a whole, that's a different <laughs> podcast. And so um, you kn- you're never going to have a night where you're 100% in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you feel yourself checking out and you have to sort of reconnect with the breath and reconnect with the audience. But the audience is always a character in the play. Mm. And it's What they're doing has such an impact on what the actors are doing up there. And so, for example, I remember the opening night of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. Madison Dirks, who was playing Nick in that production, knocked over a lamp and it shattered. And I was backstage. I wasn't on stage at that time, so I couldn't hear it. I didn't know what had happened. And they they didn't miss a beat. I didn't know anything happened. The dialogue didn't change. Uh, so Tracy and Madison were able to clean up the broken glass while they were having their dialogue. And what was interesting about moments like that is accidents actually make the audience sit up and pay attention. People absolutely. love a night where something goes wrong. It's so they thrilling. They kind of expect it. <laughs> they wait for yes, it. Yes, they <laughs> do. Because it, it's, um, it reminds us that we're all bodies in space and that anything is possible. Right. And with TV and film, it's already finished. Mm-hmm. And you can go pause it and go to the bathroom or get some more popcorn. But yeah. in, in a live space, they've actually proven that groups of people, when they're sitting together, start breathing at the same rate. Really? So it really is a shared breath.
1: That's interesting and creepy at the same time. It is a little bit. <laughs> but we're also missing those moments That's now. true. And That wasn't really the answer to your question. No, I, I, I think you I, think I you fell on my face <laughs> once on an
0: opening night. I climbed a ladder. I was in a period dress and boots, and I got caught, and I fell almost five feet flat on my face at the end of a speech and of course it was an 1100 seat outdoor Shakespeare theater in Wisconsin and you could hear the (gasps) intake of breath and that uh, collective intake of breath oh it was horrifying they thought I was dead I looked dead and of course we were speaking in accents and all of my um, fellow actors were improvising like oh darling are you right?" you know it was horrible just improv and um, in that moment you have to understand so the audience is really scared and they've been taken out of the play Yes. so I stood up I looked out, and then I took a very big curtsy, (laughs) and they applauded, just so they all knew that I was okay. And then we went on with the story. And that's an example of a moment where you have to take care of the audience, I think, and bring them back in. And it made all the reviews, too. And (laughs) let me just say, my family wasn't the least bit surprised. I'm very clumsy.
1: (laughs) Way to play it off like a true champ. Yeah. And so, I mean, when it comes to choosing projects or roles, I mean, of course, you want something that's challenging. You want something you can really bite into. Mm -hmm. But more specifically, what are you looking to explore in a character and in some way explore about yourself?
0: Hopefully. Well, the first the most important thing is that the writing is good, because I don't Mm -hmm. think you can mine uh, a project to that end, exploring Mm -hmm. yourself if the writing isn't strong. So that's the first and most important thing. I always am interested in something that is scary. Hmm. I'm always interested in something, (laughs) right, that I haven't done before. As you can imagine, after I did The Leftovers and Fargo, so many of the offers I got were, so it's a mother who's lost her children. (laughs) So it's a police chief who's lost her children. You know, it was all the same character. Because in some ways, Hollywood doesn't have as much imagination as you might find in the theater or in podcasting, Mm -hmm. actually. And so you get typecast. So for me, I'm always looking for, is this something I haven't done? have you seen me make all these faces before? <laughs> then maybe we don't need to do this one. Right. And so, what I like it when it's scary because I don't really know what I'm going to be confronting mm. in myself. Right. And it's always, uh, hopefully, expansive.
1: Yeah, I would say so. I hope so. I would say so. And I mean, you once described an actor's job perfectly, I thought, in mm. an interview. You said, your job is to give them, meaning the director or the showrunner, uh, the colors to paint with. And so in that context, what would you say is your process for mixing the colors, so Mm. to speak?
0: Oh, I think I have found over time that the most important thing to do is to know your lines. That's A, number one. That's number one. (laughs) I come from the theater, so we have a lot of respect for the lines. Not everybody feels that way about TV, for example. But anyway, (laughs) know your lines. And then... What's always most interesting to me is that a scene happens between two people. It doesn't happen on my side or your side. And I'm not particularly interested in the kind of acting that is an aria or when you're acting alone without a scene partner. You know, sometimes uh, when they're doing really tight coverage, you have to look at the mat box instead of the person you're acting with. The matte mm-hmm. box is the frame around the camera lens. Mm-hmm. And you, you need to have a tight eyeline. And so they make the actor sort of stand behind the camera or next to it. And you can't actually look them in the face. And I hate that. Yeah. Because that's not a scene. And our job is just to be present with that other person, with that language, and then see what happens. And right. that's what I like about my job is that I think when I was a younger actor and when I was a good student and a girl who <laughs> says yes to everything because girls are taught to say yes, well, I was always trying to do the thing right mm-hmm. and do it well. And that's actually not very interesting. Right. And I had a director say to me one time after I'd gotten out of school, he said, I'm not interested in working with Carrie, the good student. I'm interested in working with Carrie, the artist. Ah. So stop trying to guess what I want. Right. And that was really liberating for me. And it took a long time to get to that place. But I think now, there's a version of acting where you can go in front of your mirror and make a lot of choices and then you can bring those choices to work and I suppose there's a place for that maybe if you're doing something really character driven based you know maybe creature work Mm -hmm. there's probably a place for that kind of process but it's not a process that interests me I'm more interested in preparing the way and then showing up and seeing what happens between two people
1: and so to that point I mean that's obviously something that you've crafted and honed in theater film and tv Mm -hmm. but as you mentioned before there's podcasting you have your new Mm -hmm. podcast with Gimlet uh, Mother Hacker which is you know I've had the privilege of hearing the first couple of episodes and it's Really good. Cool. Very, very riveting stuff. And so, I mean, first of all, before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, I mean, what made you say yes to something like this? Because you're joining a list of a lot of actors, mm-hmm. Rami Malik, Katherine Keener, Jenny Slate, a lot of really great actors are going... The podcast route but what made you say yes
0: well one of the things is that it's available to us you know we we've always been in a gig economy mm-hmm. actors we're, we're like welcome to the gig economy oh, everybody we we've been doing it forever a lot here right? yeah. <laughs> so so in some ways you're always looking for what's the what's the next place i can make a living that yeah. keeps me in my craft right. that keeps me in language and i've been fortunate in my career to make my like my side jobs have all been related to performance i also edited dissertations which i also consider to be oh, part wow. of being in language i was working with um students that were esl at a university to help them edit their dissertations and that was really really interesting to help like is this what you mean to say of and course here, is there a better way we can say it so um my side jobs were never waiting tables or it was always in language so anyway yeah. so we're always looking for that and We also get typecast in TV and film. So like I said, I get a lot of, you know, cop moms who've lost their children. Mm -hmm. And in podcasting, you don't have to look a certain way. You just have to have that vocal flexibility to articulate whatever the story is. And I think that's a really liberating medium. You also don't have to put on hair and makeup. That's
1: always a <laughs> blessing, is, I'm sure. Which I find,
0: I don't like hair and makeup, <laughs> and I have a toddler, so I don't really have time for that. So if you can show up and do something in your pajamas, even better, and... it also is a real exercise in the imagination because the other thing you don't get is a set you don't get a set and props so you're the one trying to make you know it's always hard when you go in to do ADR for a tv Mm -hmm. and film project when you were on set and then you have to come in and pretend you're still there and you're like (laughs) you know if you have to like do some heavy breathing or some grunting or sex sounds god forbid (laughs) then you don't have anything there to help you right and so podcasting is like it's like being a little kid And a foley artist at the same time you have to make up that environment right and i find that it was really challenging because you have to change the environment but you're not leaving the circumference of a microphone
1: Mm -hmm. and to that and also to that i mean i think because i feel like you're relying just on your voice Mm -hmm. obviously and so how did you approach that like what was your thought process in knowing that? You can't because, like you mentioned, like in theater, you rely on you rely on your body, and same thing with TV, and it's, it's everything is with your body. Both podcasting is just your voice. Mm-hmm. So, did that change how you approach the character? Like, what was sort of your process for stepping into this role of Bridget, knowing it was just going to be her voice?
0: I always so voice has always been a real preoccupation of mine. Mm. It was my way into myself when I was in graduate school. I come from the Midwest. It's a very <laughs> <laughs> sorry everyone repressed place.
1: Oh, that it is. And, Listen, right? I'm I'm, and grew up you in the know, South by way of Midwest. That's I get right. It. Yeah. And people are
0: really disconnected from their right. bodies. And so was I. Yeah. And we're all hunched over and our chests are all collapsed. And our, we're all getting dowager's humps in our backs. <laughs> and no women are using their full voices. They're all talking like this now. Oh. So they're completely cut off from their bodies. And it's so upsetting. Yeah, good. because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You sound like
1: an entirely different person. Right.
0: So I, I'm... I found, I didn't realize how limited my instrument was until I went to graduate school and I had a great voice teacher named Susan Sweeney and she ended up doing this training with us based on this theater company called the Roy Hart Theater in France. I ended up Mm. going there for a workshop and they believe, I won't tell you the whole story, you can Google it. (laughs) Maybe we'll come back to it later, but anyway. That human beings uh, can make any sound an animal can make. They believe that human beings don't have a limited range. So Mm. this actor who studied this work named Roy Hart was off the piano on both ends, and he could do that tube and throat singing, that sort of um, multi-toned singing. So you basically go to this chateau in France where you can't see your hand in front of your face at night because it's so dark. Hmm. And you, you do this interesting piano creature vocal work, and you try to extend... What's possible, and you know, it was the vocal work that made me break down in class and realize what my emotional obstacles were. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't breathe, then you can't speak. And if you can't, if you don't have a voice, and as a woman in graduate school, I realized how little a voice I had. Mm-hmm. Again, I was the good student who right. was who was um, saying yes and trying not to make waves, and you know, just being raised as a woman in the Midwest is just how I was taught to be, and I didn't realize how. Um, how little i was in touch with what i wanted right and it was vocal work that ended up literally opening that space in my body
1: i find that so fascinating because i think that's real what you what you keep touching on is that there were a lot of external factors that seemed to have been a hindrance for you in mm-hmm. the beginning so i mean what else would you say there was in terms of not even just learning the technique of acting, but mm-hmm. kind of getting over all that existing, I don't want to say baggage, but that, those existing hurdles that you had to see yourself fully realized as an actor.
0: Well, as I was saying earlier, I think the, the gift of acting is that it requires your presence mm-hmm. to do it well, to do yeah. it at all. And when I was in school, it was a constant invitation to be present. And this is something I've spoken about finally publicly in the last couple of years. But I also had a really serious impulse control disorder. Mm-hmm. I, I had been a compulsive skin picker since I was about two. And that is absence. What it is, is a, it's a kind of withdrawal into oneself. It's a cycle of shame. Mm-hmm. And it's protective. You sort of pull away from the world. It's very withdrawn. And uh, it was acting that had me sort of... Break that um, pattern by exercising what it meant to be present. And my thesis in school was about, you know, how can I stay present when I'm washing a bowl? Mm. How can I sit here and eat this meal and try to be present with whatever's happening and that through extending that pattern that impulse time i was able to break a pattern in my life and and change right and it was really just through being an artist that i was able to do that you could argue that that impulse was a, was a call to be an artist perhaps but either way it was the thing that really saved me and so you had to i had to slow down time mm. i had to learn how to slow down time and i had to learn how to breathe right and i firmly believe that breathing <laughs> if we would all take a deep breath <laughs> we wouldn't be living in the space we're living in right now. Right. That's
1: what I was going to ask you. I mean, it seems like this is advice that can extend beyond acting. Because you mentioned it earlier, like we Mm -hmm. all need to learn how to be more present. So what would you say are some tips to be more present to, it may sound so obvious, to breathe, yeah. But yeah. I guess, like, what are some some tips or exercises that you that oh, you would recommend to gosh. teach people how to be more present?
0: Wow, wow, I, you know, we're going there. We are. I mean. That's so interesting. I, it's humbling to be asked. Uh, well, what's one of the things that was interesting is when I did that workshop in France. None mm-hmm. of the other women, except for one that were in my class, they were. I think maybe there were eight or ten of us. None of them were were performers. They were all writers, teachers. Uh, you know, lawyers. Mm -hmm. And they were women who had, for some reason, had been told about this place and felt called to try to find an opening for themselves. And so I I met these sort of tiny, these women with these little mousy Mm. voices, you know. And by the end of the week, they were arms thrown open, chest wide open, and and full voiced. And it was the most extraordinary transformation, much more so than me, because I was still performing it a little bit. You know, I was in my 20s. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. (laughs) And so for me, uh, honestly, there's physical work that can be done where you actually work on opening the fascia in your chest, because Mm. we're all so collapsed in. You can actually do work with teachers and you can massage the spaces in between your bones. Because if you feel a baby's body, it's really like spongy, yeah, like the marshmallow man. And we should all actually oh. feel like that, but we're not. We're all bound. Right. And our muscles are so re- restricted. And it's work I've been doing for years, because I can't, you can't play a princess if you can't stand up straight. Hmm. That's kind of the old. So if you're, you know, your neck <laughs> is sticking out, right. like everybody who carries a backpack or is looking at their phones. Right. Um, we're all getting curved in our chest and rounded in our backs mm. and you actually can't breathe fully like that and yeah. so you have to really do physical work to open up your chest and then i think you just have to practice i when i started meditating i didn't n- have a class or a book or a method i just started sitting there
1: mm-hmm.
0: because in voice class you know you lay on the floor and you put your hand on your belly and you wait for the breath to drop in so i'd had that exposure right. and anybody can lay on their back their feet up so they're at 90 degrees like put your feet up and your heels on a couch and lay there and your breath will actually because of gravity eventually drop in by itself if you just sit there hmm. long enough it might take a while right. though and you might not be able to feel it right away
1: patience is key for this it is you have to have yeah. you have to develop the awareness right. and then
0: once you can drop that in that's something you can drop into any time and for women and for men but mm-hmm. particularly right now for women when we already have lacked power in most rooms. Mm-hmm. It's the access to our power in any room. Right. And if you show up, and you know, we're always criticizing p- politicians' voices, mm-hmm. actresses' voices when they're interviewed, on late night or whatever. Right. Now, there's a double standard, yes, absolutely. Right. But we could also do some work to recovering our power.
1: Definitely. By
0: using our whole bodies when we speak.
1: Right. And. You know, parlaying that into the roles that you play, because uh, you mentioned that you often get typecast as, Mm -hmm. you know, the police detective who, you know, her children go missing. But that's what you've done. And you've Mm. done it so well. I mean, in The Leftovers, you play Nora, who's her children, her children and her husband disappear. In The Sinner, season two, you play Vera, whose 13-year-old son is on on trial for a double homicide. And even in Mother Hacker, I mean, you play Bridget, who resorts to hacking she mm-hmm. gets hacked and then she resorts to hacking because she finds she's really good at it and right. it's a really dark comedy it's amazing and so for you obviously a lot of this has to do with you know really great writing but as a viewer as an audience member it's evident that you bring something to it mm-hmm. so when you're thinking about this discourse around roles for women specifically how quote-unquote mom characters mm-hmm. what do you think you're bringing to those roles to help push that forward
0: boy Hmm. Well, I guess, you know, they're all, it's all drama, right? Mm -hmm. So there's always going to be some sort of crisis. Yeah. And women are always going to be asked to cry. So we all know that. (laughs) Right. But I hope that, oh, I try not to judge the people I'm playing, but I also try not to care too much about other people liking them. Mm. And so I think one of the things that maybe I've been, maybe attracts roles to me or vice versa is that I'm not really concerned about how that person will be received in the world. I'm just concerned about how I can most truthfully inhabit that person in all that complexity. And I wouldn't say I'm even thinking about that overtly. It's just if you can let go of outside judgment, then you are fr- you have a lot of freedom inside of a person to muck around mm-hmm. because nobody, <laughs> nobody is not flawed. Right. And I find that... I don't respond to work that feels one note. I don't respond to work that, for example, is humorless. You know, my people don't deal with a crisis without a sense of humor. Right. So I try to, I guess I, I try to see a person in all those things. I mean, you know, Bridget, for example she it's it's a fun comedy and she does become she fishes you know she becomes Mm -hmm. a phone hacker and she steals identities and then she gets roped into something that's way over her head but but what she really is is a a mom who's basically a single mom right now because her husband's in rehab who's struggling economically like so many people are in this country like most people are and she will do anything she has to do to take care of her family and she's also not always going to be a great mom or a great sister or a great wife or a great hacker. Right. And I just find that it feels really real to me that people are making really hard decisions in order to take care of themselves and to stay alive. Right. This is about life and death in a country where you have to make money to survive. Yeah. And so it just feel, it felt very real to me. Hmm. Uh, she feels really grounded to me already just by virtue of those circumstances. So. I don't know. It's hard for me to say what it is that I'm – because I'm so critical. I, I hold myself to a very high standard. And uh, so, you know, you never know when – that Nora Durst is going to become what right. she's become, which is, you know, the only time I ever get recognized on the street it's by Leftovers fans. I,
1: I mean, because she became such an integral part of the thing. I and mean, she was originally going to be – in the book, mm-hmm. she wasn't that much. She no, wasn't that present. True. And then as – like, I talked to Damon Lindelof, and I talked to him about you. And, like, obviously – because of what you brought to that role they kept writing more and more for you and at the the season finale was the book of nora it ends with you I so know. It's it was like, such a
0: such a gift to me it's
1: a testament to like your ability to, to you. pull something out of these characters so it's fascinating to me
0: this episode of creative control is brought to you by Verizon the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com
1: I would love, because the thing is what, you have created some, and obviously in addition to fantastic writing, like I mentioned before, but you have embodied some remarkable characters. Thank you. And I'm just curious to know, and I feel like with these characters, with these remarkable characters come I would assume kind of the, a remarkable challenge in taking them on. Mm-hmm. So I have a list of no, no looking. Okay, I'm sure you saw it already because I'm well, sitting I right across from <laughs> you. Well, I don't do know who I but you don't know who I choose. That's but true. I, I would love it. I'm going to name a character okay. from a show or or a movie, okay. and I would like to hear a specific creative challenge that you had with that character, mm-hmm. what you did to overcome it, and one lesson you learned from it. Oh gosh, okay. I know. So we're going to start. Remind me what those are. Okay, we're going to be easy to ease into this with okay. Nora Durst from The Leftovers.
0: Oh uh, yeah, because she's real easy. She's uh, my favorite. She's uh, my She's favorite. my favorite. I, I, that, that role really changed my life. Well, of course, one of the most challenging things about playing Nora Durst is that I didn't have a child then. So <laughs> yes. I didn't have, I had never lost mm-hmm. anything the way that she had lost. Right. She lost everything. And it was very hard to imagine sustaining that level of grief in a person mm-hmm. and inhabiting that grief truthfully so that yeah. somebody who had really been through something would recognize it it was very important to me to dignify that so mm-hmm. i found i got the book wave by sonali daryanagala mm-hmm. she was the woman who lost her entire family in the tidal wave right. she lost her uh, in the tsunami rather she lost her parents both of her parents her husband and her two little boys yeah. devastating as well as her best friend's parents i think in the, in an instant, so that was the closest equivalent to Nora Durst that I would ever could ever imagine, and so I kept her book with me for three years. Wow, at like a, um, a manual, she's an economist and she writes with such economy. She writes this spare, um, very uh, stark, in very stark terms about her grieving process and really honestly. And so anywhere you open it is something human and tragic and truthful all mm-hmm. at the same time. And I never wanted to feel that I was exploiting that book. Yeah, I tried to, I treated it with such reverence because again, it was my only way into that. And so that was the hardest part is making sure that that grief felt real to people. And I, I credit uh, Sonali's book with giving me that yeah. um, access and hopefully that's the thing people are responding to when they see it.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, ooh, Gloria Burgle from Fargo. Oh, oh, Gloria. Oh, Gloria.
0: <laughs> there was a temptation with Gloria. You, sometimes in order to feel the shape of a scene, you have to go really far into the emotion, mm-hmm. like too far. Yeah. Before you can find the shape of it and then you can pull it back. Mm. And because I could access that emotion, sometimes that was an easier choice. Right. Mm. Is to just go into the emotional arc of something. right? And we had a lot of directors. Working with us, like Keith Gordon, for example, whom mm-hmm. I'd worked with on The Leftovers as well, who were always reminding me to pull it back, that it was more interesting when she was operating with some restraint, which is what, I mean, again, I'm from the Midwest. That stoicism is very familiar right. to me. <laughs> we don't actually want to reveal what we're thinking. Exactly. It's embarrassing right. and embarrasses other people. So <laughs> uh, so for Gloria, it was about um, making sure that I, you didn't show too much, hmm. when, even though you could. Right. And it was nice to have people in my corner who are looking out for that.
1: Mm, Proxima Midnight from Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, um, interesting interesting role for you. <laughs>
0: yes, it was a surprise, it, it was actually a voiceover job that yeah. turned into a motion capture job. I think the, uh, the challenge of that was that I was down there for one day, I was rehearsing a play in New York, so I didn't have a lot of availability, so they pulled me down to Atlanta on my day off, and I was in my first trimester, oh God. so I had to pee all the time, <laughs> so I was in this mocap suit, pregnant, um, (laughs) having to pee all the time. But every time you take the suit off, you have to recalibrate it. So I couldn't go pee. (laughs) There was an eclipse. So we lost a couple of hours while we all enjoyed the eclipse. And then we had to rush through the work. (laughs) So um, Uh, Proxima is a really, it's a really physical part. And they had a great movement coach down there. But I only got to work with the movement coach for a half an hour before I had to take on the role and I was tired oh my god and I hadn't really had a lot of time to dream or think about her hmm. so I didn't feel I felt really underprepared for that role yeah and they were really patient and until we <laughs> until they just had to put me on a plane to send me out to get scanned at the you know light studios and then I had to get on a plane and fly back and I remember I didn't get to eat like there was no food on the plane so it was actually just <laughs> kind of a it was an endurance right. physical endurance gauntlet and I I never felt like I really Nailed it. But um, I w- they came up to do reshoots when I was eight months pregnant. So imagine me eight oh months my- pregnant with a camera on my face, <laughs> like grunting, <laughs> holding this foam stick. It was so deeply embarrassing for all those young men oh, who are making that video my. game to see this grunting pregnant lady. But anyway. Oh. Yeah, it was just that felt physically very challenging. And also just I didn't have a lot of time to prepare.
1: Oh. And Well, to that point, I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. But, mm-hmm. you know, the character Vera Walker from this from season two of The Center, you mentioned you don't remember it. So like, Not what? really. <laughs>
0: so I had an eight week old. We Aww. thought my husband got that job first and then they called me and mm-hmm. we thought, oh, it'll be so easy. We'll just go to New York and we we'll work different days and we'll trade off. And I ended up working five days a week or something on right. that show. So I was postpartum. Luckily, the costume designer was pregnant, so she was very gracious and clothed me in these beautiful, drapey, soft fabrics. It
1: helped that you were part of a cult, and yeah, kind of no, perfect. <laughs> it was the perfect
0: role, for the perfect time. Uh, you know, light, summery clothes for my. <laughs> Uh, my Vera. And it was, you know, I was breastfeeding at the time, so I was pumping at work. Oh. There's never time for that. Oh, my God. And but the, the nice thing was that I had a kid finally. So I was finally playing a mom and I actually was a mom. And there I thought, go. oh, good. Now I get the magic mom button. <laughs> and I, every time I think about any harm coming to him, I'll just cry. And it wasn't true. Right. Oh. It actually didn't. It wasn't. It didn't work. It wasn't <laughs> what I thought it was going right. to be. It actually was something it's for me. I experienced loving my son as something that was growing. Hmm. And increased as I got to know him as a person so at that time it was still something I didn't even understand and so I couldn't really even use it at work <laughs> so I just had to rely on being you know having a great actor um, having Alicia opposite me who was a right. great young actor oh, he's to amazing work with. yeah and having everybody being really sweet and generous about me being sleep-deprived and having you know really bad eye bags <laughs> and stuff but luckily Vera was going through a tough time so it didn't matter right and I had my husband around too well not really actually no I didn't see him because we worked on different days but it was really hard. It was just, again, physically kind of hard, but luckily the that Jungian <laughs> under, that underbelly of that of show was really appropriate for right. all of those existential questions I was facing as a new mom. So that was actually a good place for me to be, even though I don't remember it.
1: And you know, speaking of those different characters, and I'm just curious to know, I mean, how would you say these different roles have stretched your abilities as an actor?
0: Oh, gosh, boy. I know that Nora taught me the most. I mean, Nora was one of my first big roles. That was the longest I'd ever spent on camera was yeah. playing her. And I continued to work with a voice teacher and just to drop in my voice and to work mm-hmm. on my body while I was playing her because I realized that she was more grounded than I was mm. and that she walked into a room differently than I did just with a, a backbone that I didn't have. Mm. And so in some ways I grew a backbone while I was playing her. Mm. And it really, she did change the way I moved through the world. It, she mm. made me more of a no-nonsense gal who could stand up for myself. I I really believe that, that I learned that from her. Mm -hmm. And I was able to carry that with me into the next projects. I mean, Gloria really gave me an appreciation for where I came from. Mm -hmm. I had it anyway, but it was nice to be able to express it in art because so much of the art I'm playing in is bigger and more liberal and more you know, <laughs> ostentatious <laughs> than where i come from and so it was nice to quietly honor that place mm-hmm. in her and then Margot, i just got to be a sister which i am of three brothers so yeah. that was just fun to do right and then with vera you know i had vera was the first time since i had a baby where i didn't get to prepare for any a role
1: which i thought so that's the thing i mean you mentioned with you know dealing with Proxima that was something that you mm-hmm. kind of chipped away at you a little bit i felt
0: really insecure about that because of it and then so once i got to vera there was no time to be insecure you just had to show up i was gonna say
1: so i mean what did you learn from that i learned that i don't need a process exactly so throw (laughs) this whole episode away what the hell have i been doing for all these years so
0: unnecessary how did you manage i just showed up you know (laughs) i just showed up i tried to sleep a little bit i tried to know vaguely what the lines might be
1: but honestly it's probably muscle memory at this point because yeah. I, you, I don't I don't know, I mean, you tell me, I don't know if you would have been able to take that role in that headspace mm-hmm. early on in your career. I mean, like.
0: No, that's an interesting point. I do believe they come into your life at the right time. Mm-hmm. So no, I probably wouldn't have played it then, or I wouldn't have said yes to it anyway. Yeah. And then what it reminds you is how much you rely on your scene partner, mm-hmm. that it's not about you, right that it's about the impact you're having on somebody else. And if you're thinking about you, then you're probably doing it wrong. Right. And so if you don't have time to think about, you know, to prepare and think about yourself, the only thing you have is the person exactly. across from you. And fortunately for me, I had such great actors yeah. to work with in that show. And Bill, you know, it was Bill was so lovely and we yeah. really had a great time. And he's a theater guy. So it always felt like theater rehearsal in the best way. And and again, it was just an exercise in presence because mm-hmm. you also couldn't get worked up over. Well, I haven't slept. I need to pump. I You could not those <laughs> right. things couldn't get in your way either. You right. had to put everything aside and sit down across from somebody. And yell line if you needed it. <laughs> and and also be kind to yourself, which mm. is something I've also had to learn. Yeah. I'm a perfectionist and I had to learn how to bring love into every room. And Aww. for myself too is the thing that I came to late. Yeah. I could start I could start to bring love for other people in audition rooms and things, but it was much harder for me to, to return it to myself. Yeah. And I think playing Vera was because I was so filled with love and fear and all of these new emotions I had to be generous with myself or I couldn't have gotten through it. And that was a really good final lesson for going forward with Mm -hmm. it. And yeah. And also that I don't, I don't need time to prepare. (laughs) I just show up. I just show up sick, deliver the goods.
1: So one thing I always love to ask my guests is over the course of your career and Mm -hmm. all considering all the things we've talked about, how have you come to define creativity? How, do you, how have you defined it for yourself? I
0: find that, it, for me, it's a space. Creativity is a space in which I get to be fully expressed. Hmm. And I find that because of that, creative people, the ones I know, are often the healthiest people I know. I feel like it's an invitation. And that feeling of being fully expressed is d- addictive, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> right. you don't want to go back. It's like when you're when you do experience what it is to be present then you you want it all the time hopefully mm. it's just really hard to attain yeah and so to know that it's impossible for me to obtain that uh, moment of i don't know constant enlightened presence mm-hmm. that means there's always going to be something to learn yeah and so i always find that there's this stereotype about actors where they're all they're all self-obsessed narcissists <laughs> And that may be true of some of them. But I have to say that mostly what I find is people who are genuinely um, curious. Hmm. And as I get older, the only people I keep in my life are curious ones. I I find that the others kind of fall away because I'm not interested in people who aren't interested in people. Ah. So that's what it means to live a creative life for me is to be surrounded by people like that.
1: I love that. Oh, thank you so much, Carrie. This oh, man, is so lovely. Oh, thank you. Ah, this is everything I we'll could We'll do it remembered. again sometime. Do it again with feeling. It sounds good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, don't forget to rate and review. We always love hearing your feedback. I'm your host, Casey Feining.